We're going to be in the book of Ephesians tonight, Ephesians chapter 1. We're thinking about Paul's prayers. We're thinking about what it means when Paul says that uh, we are to pray without ceasing. What does that praying without ceasing look like? We're looking at how Paul works it out. Um, just as we get ready to read this prayer, I want to make this mention about it. If you add up the prayers of the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, you will find that it is just short of half of those three chapters are devoted to prayers. Right? We are going to be in the prayer, which is found at the uh, in verse 15, starts in verse 15 of the first chapter. But before that, there comes a great blessing to God. He says this, that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That whole section is a a sound of praise for what God has done for his own. It teaches us about the greatness of our salvation, but we know of who he is and what he's done. He has been teaching. He will continue to teach, but a lot of that teaching is found in the form of prayers. It's very interesting. He's a man who prayed without ceasing. We're going to be in again, I'm going to begin reading in just a moment in chapter 1, verse 15. But before we do, let's commit our time this evening into the Lord's hands. Father, we come before you and we give you thanks for the wonderful truth of your word. We thank you for the power of the Spirit of God to illumine that word. And we're coming to ask you to give us insight tonight, understanding into your ways, and the ability to follow hard after you in those ways. And so we come and commit the evening to you, ask for you to meet us in every way for your glory. And we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Coming off that long, again, you should note, I think we've mentioned that before, that from verse 3 to verse 14, 12 consecutive verses, which only are one sentence for Paul. That's how excited he's getting. He's just peeling off his sentence. Now he starts his second sentence. And that begins in verse 15, as he then talks about, why and how he prays. So we'll begin reading in verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the, of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul has told us, what great things God has done for us. The key point of that whole thing is that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That's why he's saying, blessed be God, because he has held back nothing. We've seen that before. There's nothing restraining about what God's doing. He's, he's freely giving life and, and this full salvation to everyone. He tells them what the Father has done in planning this. He tells us what the Son has done to work out the potential for it. He tells us what the Spirit of God has done when he comes and rescues us and brings us to himself and seals us and makes us his own. Then he says this, for this reason, all right, for this reason. So the risk for the reason is because of everything that God has done. And for a second reason, he says, when I heard about your faith and love, we've been through that before because that's what Paul's always looking for. When the Spirit of God changes a man, when he brings him to himself, two characteristics will immediately begin to manifest themselves in that person, no matter what their background is. If they've been touched by God, 
he will do two things for them. He tells them that Jesus Christ is their source, and they begin, they're not perfect in this, they may be very ignorant of how much God has done for them, but they begin to move their faith towards Jesus Christ. The second thing is this, that they are alerted to the fact that they are now part of a bigger group, and they begin to have an affinity with the other people who have committed themselves to Jesus Christ. So he says, when I heard about the faith that you had, and I saw the, or heard about the love that you're demonstrating, I knew something was up. I knew that God was at work. All right? It says, therefore, therefore, because of everything God has done, and because he's at work in you, I decided I was going to pray for you. And this is the way I would pray. Now, in the book of Ephesians, he's going to offer two prayers. Think about one next week. But the first prayer comes off of this. This is what he wants them to do. Now, in each of Paul's prayers in the books of Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians, he uses the same technique, the same pattern. He gives us the essence of the prayer first. This is, the, this is what I'm asking for. And then he explains why he's asking for it. It is very difficult in exposition to determine when he stops praying and when he starts just teaching again. When has he finished with the actual prayer that he's offering, what he's saying to God, and when does he move to what? This is why I'm, I'm asking God this. But we know this much, that the essence of that prayer is really pretty simple. He says, I'm going to ask God to do something for you. And what is that? Well, we'll go down to verse 17. Here it is. I don't, uh, verse 16 says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. It says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Right, he says that that will lead to, and again, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And I think that should be included in the concept here. It says, I'm praying that God will give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, the word knowledge there, you've probably heard many times, this is the, the rich word of knowledge. It, it's generally uh, understood by the commentators to mean a full knowledge, or a rich knowledge, a complete knowledge. Right? If you know something, you can know part of it, but he says, now I want you to know it all. And you remember that um, this is characteristic of Paul's praying and Paul's teaching. He sees a richness in Christ, and he wants you to experience that richness. He doesn't want us to be somehow beggars who are getting by in the Christian life when so much has been entrusted to us, so much wealth has been poured out on us. So it's, and the full knowledge, it says in the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Who's the him there? Uh, Well, the him there is Jesus Christ. Because in the first section, in that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's, it's all about what is true for us in him. We're in Christ. And so he goes, that's the repeated refrain. In him we have this. In him we have this. In him we have this. And now he comes to this place. He says, now, what I want is the Spirit of God to come and to teach you, to give you this spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. Now, we're just trying. This is a, as we said, it's kind of a simple class. We're not trying to be profound here. We're just trying to figure out what Paul, how did Paul pray, right? We're asking simple questions. We're moving our way through it. First point we want to make here. Paul was not content just to teach people. That was good. That was important. But if the ministry of the word is to be successful, there's three things that the Spirit of God uses in order to change lives. And they are the ministry of the word, the testimony of the saints, and prayer. Those are the three things that he uses. We tend to have a great deal of emphasis, particularly in the United States, on the ministry of the word. But it's interesting that as soon as Paul, as, as he's speaking about, he's teaching the word, he then says, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that you'll see what I just said. Right? That's, that's in, you know, for any of us that have the responsibility of teaching, this becomes, you know, an important concept that I can tell you something But if that is going to become a reality to you, if it's going to change you, the Spirit of God has to do something while I'm teaching. He has to do that. It's not enough 
in a ministry to just keep teaching the Word. The Word has to be taught, but the prayer has to be offered. And Paul puts both of them right there. I, I've told you now what, what's great, what great blessings are yours in Christ. But now I want to turn to this. I want to, I want to pray for you. Again, that's going to be the main point today because I wonder how many people you're trying to help, right? And it's, again, this could be as simple as you're trying to lead your children into a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so you'll teach them about him. But are we asking God to illumine them? Are, are we doing the prayer work to illumine them? It might be a Sunday school class. It might be a neighbor that you're trying to disciple. It might be, again, it might be more formal than all that. But if it's going to be effective, Paul knows this, he must teach, and he's the master teacher here, but he also must pray because the only way the truth will get to the real core of the being and make sense is if he prays. Now, he prays for two things. and I'm going to keep on with this kind of thought because it's kind of mysterious. I, I mentioned it last week, but I didn't develop it at all. In the prayer in Colossians, he says this, that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. All right? So he has two words, wisdom and understanding, but he puts them in that order. Wisdom first, then understanding. In this prayer, he says, I want God to give to you. I'm going to pray that you would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, this really confused me for a long time. And again, I'm not sure I still have the answer. Paul, why did you put it that right way? Now, that's because what is wisdom? Well, we talked about it a little bit last week, but let's review it. And I'm, I'm going to quote here from Hendrickson, although I think he quotes from a whole bunch of people. All right, so I'm not sure that this is particularly his, but that way I'm giving credit to somebody else. I didn't come up with this. All right, so anyway, here's his definition of wisdom. All right, he says this, it is the ability to use the best means to achieve the best end. A person of wisdom knows what they have to achieve. Where is the right way? What's the right thing to do with your life? Where are you going to go with your life? What difference can it make? All right, so they, they know the, the good end. But they also know this. They know the steps to get to that end. And a wise man takes those steps. All right, so that's, that's an action word. Now, in thinking, it would seem to me that the logic goes this way, that God would give to you a spirit of revelation and of wisdom, or that he would give you understanding and wisdom, because it would stand to it reason to me that the very first thing you need is to get it before you're ever going to be able to do anything with it. And that bothered me. It just seemed backwards. In fact, the truth of the matter is, anybody... Uh, been listening to me for years, you know, I teach it backwards because it's just the logic is, is there. Why did Paul do it that way? And it, it, it concerned me. I kept thinking about it because he does it twice. So there's some reason why he's doing it this direction. And I, I think that um, it's very important where Paul was after because he's going to use the best means, the best end. He is not interested in you just getting facts into your mind. He is interested in the believers taking hold of those facts and living out the benefit of them. The Christianity is not about what's in our, our mind. It's just the things we know here. It's what we understand and can then act on. And that's where Paul was always aiming. And I think it's for that reason that he goes right to the heart of it because it's so easy. Isn't it one of those tendencies of our own human heart is just to get to know what the truth is. Now I admit that he is praying here for believers and kind of the uh, illustration I'm going to use isn't, is about my own life, but it wasn't, I wasn't a believer at the time. But, you know, I, I grew up in church. I was in a Methodist church. It was formal. And one of the things that was true of every Methodist church I was ever in was that every Sunday morning they recited the Apostles' Creed. Every Sunday morning. I'm not sure how old I was. I, I don't. Some people can remember when they were really young. Maybe a, I don't know why I forgot it, but anyway, I don't remember when I was really young. But I know I was in church. I don't remember a time when I was anywhere but church. 
All right. But let's say that at five years of age, I started reciting that. And I know by then I was in that church listening because I wasn't allowed to stay out. Okay. That would mean that by the time I went to college, still a lost man, I had recited the Apostle Creed over 600 times. Now, that Apostles' Creed, I don't know if you remember how the Apostles' Creed go. Okay, it starts that I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I'll recite it here real quickly because you know, I proved that I can still do it. All right. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come. It was whence. That was the first time I used the word whence. Anyway, whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. All right. That was how it went. And the choir sings. I don't remember what they sing. But anyway, they sing after that. Now, why do I go through all that? I said that every week, virtually every week, because I was in church most weeks, from the time I was very small until I went to Furman University at 18 years of age. Then I went to churches that didn't do that. They didn't recite that every week. When When I arrived at Furman, again, let me back up here. In order to get to become a member of the Methodist churches I was in, you had to go through confirmation class. And in confirmation class, you actually took tests. And on those tests, I answered all the right questions because I had memorized the Apostles' Creed. I knew why Jesus came. I knew that he was born of a virgin. I knew all these things. I knew he's ascended into heaven. I said I knew that the Spirit of God had come. I wasn't sure what the Holy Catholic Church was, but anyway, anyway that's what we said, the Holy Catholic Church. I didn't, I didn't argue, um, even though we weren't Catholic. you know. So, but that's how deep my, my inquiries went. But I got, all the right que- I got all the right answers, and I was confirmed. All right? And when I went to Furman University, I didn't get it. It had no impact, really, on my practical living. I lived like all the other people around me. Just went to church on Sunday. It had that much impact. I better go to church. But if anybody asked me who Jesus was and what he did, I could answer all the right questions, but the lights haven't come on. Does that make sense? Now, there is a problem here, and I want you to note, uh, biblical language is sometimes twisted a little bit. And again, I'm not, I'm not here to say the thought, the thought is wrong. I'm just saying that it's not actually accurate. There's a track, which is a very famous track, which, you know, missing heaven by 18 inches, the distance from your head to your heart, all right? And I know what they're saying there. It's unbiblical, though, on the language, all right? Just make it your head and your heart, your mind and your heart are all one There is no division there. That's not the way the Bible sees it. But it does recognize this. It is very possible to have biblical thoughts that don't make sense to you. That have never been illuminated to you in such a way that you can grab hold of them and you can practically live by them. That's possible. The vocabulary might be a little off, but the concept is there. That it is possible to have those things in the heart and and still completely miss it. Now, Paul isn't going to allow that. (laughs) He's he's concerned about that. So what's he going to ask? He's going to ask the the Spirit of God, who he's already said sealed these people, and is working in them, that he will do this work. He will come and turn on the lights. That's what I said, the eyes of your heart being enlightened. He's just using a figure there that inwardly, it comes on. You, you get what's going on. You understand what you're handling. Right? You begin to see it and comprehend it. And comprehend it in such a way that you can, you can do something with it. And he's going to ask for that. A spirit of wisdom and a revelation. And that's really what we need, isn't it? I mean, how many people here have something on your heart tonight where you don't know what to do? What's the right way to go next? How's, he gonna, how's God going to answer this thing? How am I gonna, what should I do with this situation? How many of us have those kinds of things? 
in order to make the right decisions, what do you need? You need wisdom. That's what Paul's asking. Wisdom. Because in any sermon, you could do this, you could do this. What's the right thing to do? What is the right way to say this? How many times have I been in front of a class and you look at faces and you're going like, oh my goodness, they're not getting it. Lord, what is the way that I can word this that will get past them putting away like I did the Apostles' Creed and gets down in and and really sings in here? Who knows the answer to that? Spirit God does. That's why I need a spirit of wisdom and revelation from God. I need him to explain what can't be explained. I'll never learn unless he tells me. But I also need him to turn on the lights. I need him to turn on the lights for me. And you need him to turn on the lights for you. And Paul knew that his teaching wouldn't turn those lights on by itself. This is important. This is very humbling. If only, you know, I'm a great teacher. I can turn on light. No, you can't turn on the lights. All you can do is put the truth out there and then pray and ask the Spirit of God who loves the people who you're speaking to and have him come in and make it, make it real to them. Make them see it. All right. So Paul's going to go that route. Biblical truth is practical. It has to make a difference in our lives, and only the Spirit of God can do that. And so Paul isn't going to fool around with trying to just bypass the Spirit of God. He's going to ask. And we should ask for the Spirit of God to work in the lives of those. Now, what will be the end of all that? What is his aim in all this? Paul's speaking to a really, he's always dealing with practicalities. He's, He's telling us what the church is like. That's what the book of Ephesians is about. It's really the doctrine of the church. Not church order, not the local church, how a local church functions. His thought here is how the universal church. What is, the, what is it that God did when he called out a group of people and made them his own? What are they? And how do they function? So this is, doesn't have to do with particular um, bodies of Christ. This has to do with the big, the big picture here. What's his plan for them? All right. And so as he's thinking about that, he, he says he's outlined to them the greatness of their salvation. That was the first, those are those verses from 3 to 14. Now he prays for them to see it. All right. Now he's praying for them to get that. But why is he praying? What things does he think you really need to see about the Lord? to enable you to fulfill the calling that we have as the church of Jesus Christ. And so he comes down to three things, and I want to go over those because they're, they're very interesting, the, the direction that he goes. Because there's so many things he could have said. Now, again, he's already outlined the great blessings that we have, but he wants you to see three things. And so he then tells us what those three things are. Let's read those. Again, this would be, pick this up in, Verse um, 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that, and this is the purpose of your enlightenment, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Secondly, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And third, what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? We'll go on with that later uh, as he then develops that concept. Three things. Now, the first one I'm not going to spend a long time on because we have covered it in recent weeks um, pretty thoroughly. Paul prays that they might have, they might know what is the hope of his calling. Okay, the calling, as far as Paul is concerned, is what happened when the Spirit of God came to you and spoke to you about your need. And drew you out of the darkness and brought you into the light. It's that moment you can call conversion. You can call whatever you want to call that that moment. That moment when you passed from darkness to light. That moment when you, you came to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. That day when you repented and believed. There's different ways you can describe it. But it's that day. When that happened, everything changed for you why it's again that's why we preach the gospel right 
because everybody in this room is in one of two categories, and that's just, it's always rather sobering to do, to be up in front of people, knowing that I have the Word of God, and it could be life and death to people. That there was a day when you realized that you were wrong with regards to God, that you didn't love Him with all your heart, you didn't even, you had done the wrong thing. You realized it. It had been true all along, but you realized it. And realizing that, you realized that you also had to come to that place where if you were ever going to have that settled, he was going to have to settle it. You couldn't settle it on your own. There's nothing you could do, no performance, no, no activity. There is no penance that you can perform that will clear away the guilt of what you did and the reality of your nature that the entirety of that salvation rests completely on what the Lord did. That's what he was showing you. That's what the gospel, that's what it's all about. And that on a cross, in a death, he dealt not only with the guilt of my sin, but with the reality of my rebellion. But particularly, it was about the guilt of the sin. And you came to this place where you realize there's only one thing I can do about it. And that is turn from everything and come to him and say, take my life and save it. Right? That's, you can think of it as receiving a gift. You can think of it entrust, as entrusting yourself to him. There's different ways that the Bible puts it. It's not just receiving a gift. There's the entrusting. There are different ways it happens. But you come to, from a place where you are trusting in your own self with regards to your relationship with God. And you say, I'm going to put it all in your hands that moment you were placed into Christ and everything for all eternity changed it was at that moment that the Bible tells us that there was joy in the presence of the angels God rejoicing we saw that a couple weeks ago God rejoicing over the fact that a person who has lost has become one of the children of God and when that took place you were given to the Lord Jesus Christ now the first thing that Paul says he wants you to know, and you have to know, and I have to know, if we're going to live out the life which we're called to as the church, is this, the hope that that brings to your life. Because this world doesn't offer a lot of hope, right? There's not a lot of hope from the things that are in this world, right? It's one of the reasons why the appeal of the Lord to people is, is not only just to, to understand the guilt of their sin. He also appeals to them on the basis of you have, you have gone to this world and you have tried to re- derive life from it and it hasn't worked, has it? You're thirsty. And if you're not thirsty, he doesn't have anything really to offer you. But if you are thirsty, he says, if you come to the place where you realize that the things that are on this earth, they're not going to satisfy, and the the things you could do are only going to pass away, that you are a vapor. Isn't that a terrible description of a soul? We are but a vapor. (laughs) Next time you're drinking your coffee, vapor disappears pretty fast. So the best things I can do on this earth are going to disappear very quickly. Now he says on this side, not only is the guilt there, but this is there. When you came to Christ, you were given hope because your life ceased to be a vapor. Your physical life, it was still pretty short. All right, we're still only going to be here for a little bit. But that isn't even the beginning of the life that you have. He didn't come just to save you from the guilt of sin and and to save you from hell. He came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so he calls you into that. Now, that abundant life comes with hope with hope and we but we reviewed a lot of those things they're just it's not one thing it's there's a hope that the king who's seated on the throne will one day return and this earth will be righteous isn't that a great thought that the earth will be righteous it will be covered with righteous men at one point because jesus will rule over it okay there is the hope there is the hope that everything that happens in my life We'll work together for good because he's working it. That there's no wasted energy in my life. There is nothing that anything anybody can do to me which ultimately harms me. 
It may distress me for a period because of the pain of it, but it will not ultimately harm me because I am in the hand of the one who controls the whole thing, and it's all being woven together to a great end. That's tremendous. That's a lot of hope, right, in the middle of all the things we face in sicknesses and in political problems and in financial problems and in relational problems that we can't solve, can't sort out. He says, now, all that's wonderful, but you have to see it, right? Because if I don't grasp that, if it just becomes, if it just moves up here and becomes the right answer on a test, then it is of no benefit to making wise decisions in life. It doesn't become a means by which I can say, you know what, this is true, but I'm going to rejoice. Why will I rejoice? Because I see what is actually taking place. So the first thing is the hope of his calling. All right, We did a lot on that a couple weeks ago as we thought about that. As Paul said, I'm, may the God of hope fill you with all. The result of having hope is what? Joy and peace in believing. And then you might abound in hope in the middle of a real, he's talking about people in real world who are being persecuted there. Okay, that's the first thing. The second one isn't easy. All right. The second one, and I'm going to, let me read it out of the New American Standard again, is um, a little bit more tedious to expound, all right? Um, It says, in what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? The problem with this one is the verse could actually be translated two different directions, and they have, it could mean listed on your paper here, but it could mean on the one side, and it is, I will say this, grammatically, and again, just know that when I say it's grammatically right, it's because I read it in a book, all right? So I am not a a New Testament grammar expert. I'm just saying this, that they're arguing there. that The best way to interpret it is that this, that we might know how great the Lord's inheritance in us is, how great it is that he has us. Right? That's the, but the other way that it can also be translated is that, and it's within the bounds of the grammar, say the experts, uh, that it could mean our inheritance. We have an understanding of the greatness of our inheritance in him. Now, if the passage was completely on its own, I think all the commentators would go with the first description because it most naturally says that God has an inheritance. The Lord has an inheritance in us. Right? And that we might know how much and the thought here would be that you might know how much it means to the Lord that you're going to be with him one day. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. It's an old German hymn. It starts off in a, in a rough way. Uh, midst the darkness, gloom and sorrow. <laughs> One bright gleam I see. All right. The very end of that goes something like this. I, if I can, I'm picking it up and I'm, sometimes I have a hard time getting started on it. But there in that bright glory, one great joy will share. He's talking about the Lord and himself walking through life. And in, in that day, one great joy will share. Mine to be forever with him. His that I'm there. I remember reading that and I'm going like, well, we talked about that a couple weeks ago too. That's sometimes hard to believe, right? We used to have a, I didn't go over that before, but we used to have a joke when I was at Furman. Um, and I know this is terrible, but anyway, here it is. And it was, we, we kid each other that we weren't getting along very well. We weren't, we weren't progressing in our sanctification. And that maybe our place in heaven would be on as by fire lane, you know, and that was going to be the guys that are living over there. And they, they, they made it, but they just live in the slums of heaven. You know, because they, they are only the second-rate ones there. It was very difficult for me to believe that God had any joy in the thought that I was going to be there. Glory, because he had shaped it. Uh, but after all, I mean, I was fully aware of how much he was having to do to rebuild my life and how many times. That's after I've been converted that pride entered in. How many times. My selfishness dominated. How many times I was 
inadvertently just mean to people and didn't even realize it. I thought, man, what, what the Lord has to put up with. When I get there, he'll just say, thanks. I'm glad, glad this is over. I'm glad you're, not, you're here and we won't have to deal with you anymore out there. But there is a thought there that, you know, the inheritance of the saints. Now, if, I want to say, if it was independent, that's probably the way we would all translate it. But the fact of the matter remains that in the books of Ephesians and Colossians, which are kind of written at the same time on the same outline, Paul mentions the inheritance six times. And five of them, it's crystal clear that it's the inheritance that we have in him. All right? Does that make sense? Again, you can go back over them there. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. He says that in him we have an inheritance. All right? We have this inheritance in him. And I don't have time to go through all of these. In um, chapter 1, verse 14, in the last of those, he says that the Spirit of God is given to us to guarantee to us. He comes and he lives in our lives, and his presence in our lives is the guarantee that the inheritance will be ours one day. All right? He is going to talk in chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 5, he is talking about unbelievers, and he says to th- that they, they commit certain sins. He says, don't be confused. People who commit these kinds of sins will not share in the inheritance of the saints in light. All right. In the book of um, Colossians, at the very beginning, he talks about, in chapter 1, it says, verse 12, he talks about how he has qualified us in, in his work, in his great work on our behalf, qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We, we've been qualified for that, to be part of it. He will then say, uh, again, this is an encouragement to slaves to continue faithful to God despite their l- enormous limitations because they are going to share in the inheritance Here they might be the downtrodden, but in heaven they'll share the full inheritance of Jesus Christ. So keep on on being faithful. Which means that if this verse is talking about his inheritance in us, it would be the only place that it would be there in the whole of the section. That makes sense. So the grammar favors the first, the context favors the second, and nobody wants to make the commitment there. But we should say, all right, and this, you say, well, where are you going to come down? I'm not. You just have to, you have to admit when you're a teacher of the Word of God and you can't come down and say, hey, I don't know. I don't know what Paul had in mind. I know that both sides of that are true. That's, that's the point I want to make, that both sides of that are accurate. We've already gone over a number of those verses that we have an inheritance. And he just said that. We have an inheritance in Christ. You are wealthy beyond, beyond your imagination because you're going to share with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords his inheritance. Right? It's his inheritance, but he's going to share it with you. Right? And so that's a reality. On the other hand, although it is never except for this place, not completely stated that he has an inheritance in it. It is inferred from a lot of different places. When Jesus prayed for his church, he says, Father, they were yours. And he's using kind of inheritance language here. And you gave them to me. And I've kept them. They are the gift of the father to the son. That's what what inheritance is. A gift from a father to a son. You were given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and, and in that being given to the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we belong to him. We are part of his inheritance. There is that thought in the book of Hebrews that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He was not joyful at the cross. It was, Gethsemane doesn't allow for that language to touch the moment of the cross. But there was a joy that was set in front of him. And many have thought that that joy is the joy of inheriting you and me as his own at the end. In the book of Ephesians, there is indication of his joy in the church and that that he'll have it. Um, In that passage, again, we read it, we thought about it a couple weeks ago. 
in which Paul is speaking about marriage. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. And then he describes what the Lord does. He said he, he, he died for her. But then he goes on to say this, that he, he cleanses her with a washing of the water by the word that he might, and this is tremendous, that he might one day present to himself a bride without any spot or any blemish. Isn't that something? A bride that no one can say anything about. She's perfect. She's perfect because he made her, but he made her for himself. This also would fit with the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians, which says this, that Jesus made all things, but they were made by him and they were made for him. His ultimate ownership is in his hands. All of those are words which would go along with the language. So neither of the thoughts are unbiblical. So we're not required to get there. I think, again, and this, this is one of those ones that everybody's heard me teach it depends on what day I'm, I'm teaching it, which way I decide it should fall, just because I'm going like it. But I think there is a certain rhythm to the section which favors the idea that it is his inheritance in us that's there. Otherwise, the first two are actually redundant. They are actually saying exactly the same thing. But if the first has to do with, if we're going to be able to live the way we ought to live, we have to see what great things are out there for so we can make right value judgments today. Because if you don't see that out there, you're going to start making value judgments that are going to be skewed by the pressures of life. But then at the same time, we need to know, you just need to know that there is a one, when you entrust yourself to the Lord, that he has a love for you, which is eternal that you are a joy to him, that you belong to him, and he really likes you. That's very important. Now, he may be spanking you. He won't put up with sin. This is not to say that he just likes us the way we are. No, he likes us the way he's going to make us. He loves us for ourselves, but he likes what he's going to do with it. He is going to wash you with the, with the water of the word so that he might present you to himself as one the way he puts it there, as, as a man would love a perfect woman, he has created this perfect woman. It's, that's what he's saying there. And it's his bride. And he created for himself. And he is completely devoted to this perfect bride. We need to know that in this life. But then there's a third side to it. Right? And again, I should say that it, that thought, I'll finish up with this, that thought that that Jesus would receive an inheritance in people that were saved was the motivating force behind the Moravian missionary force. Moravians were the first people in Europe to think in terms of systematically evangelizing the entire world. They were the first group that started looking out there and saying, you know, there's a big world out there and they have to know Jesus. And I'm sure that you've heard this. This is, was their cry, their missionary cry. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. That's the reason they went. That the lamb who was slain should receive the reward of his sufferings. We're going to go get them. We're going to go and take this word to them so that people who he died for, that he might have them. And the thought was that he would have them and they would be a treasure to him. And we are a treasure to the Lord. All right. Anyway, back to the third point. Because we're running out of time here. Paul goes on to say there's one other thing. And this has to do practically in our life. That we might know the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. The working of the strength of his might is what he's going to talk about. A power, power, power. All right, those are three words. The working of the strength of his might, he describes there. But you might know it. But you might know what the exceeding greatness of that is. You see, sometimes we think that we're left alone on this earth to work out the, what the Bible says to do. We are not. The church is an empowered people. In this book, 
He will talk about Jesus is the fullness of him that fills all in all. That's the church. He, he, Jesus fills all in all. In chapter 3, as we'll see next week as we go through the next prayer, he comes to this conclusion that the church should be filled up to all the fullness of God. Then finally in chapter 5, in one of the best known verses from the book of of Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. So we're to be filled with the Lord, we're to be filled with the Father, we're to be filled with the Spirit. We're not on our own here. But when we're filled, what happens? What what is it that's filling us? Resurrection life. That you might know, let's read it here together, you might know the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance, he says. This power is in accordance with what he did. All right, which is, okay, let's go to verse 19 again. And that what, know what the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. And that's where the three words, there are three different words for power. The working, the strength, the might. Power, power, power. That you might know power. That you might know what kind of power is at work in you. So you think, how am I going to get to that place? How can it be all ever be purified? Because power, power, power is working in you. What kind of power? And that's what he's going to go on to describe. This power, uh, which we, he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Those are the first two parts of it. What kind of power is it? Resurrection power. The power that is work at work in the church is the same power that brought Jesus from the dead. It's the power of the Spirit of God. Working in a life. Changing that life. Right? When we go out to evangelize, when, when, when I'm standing here to think, you know, what's the point of preaching? What is the point of preaching? What is it? Get up here and shout long enough and people will, you know, submit. No. The point of preaching is that there is a spirit, the spirit of the living God. The one who raised Jesus from the dead is alive in the room. And that as the word of God is placed out in the room, the spirit of God will take resurrection life and start to work. And if you have come to Christ, if you have come and entrusted yourself to Christ, you were born again of the spirit of God. And in that new birth, you share the life of Christ. You are, part, you are the branch, and he is the vine, and that life is flowing. But what life is flowing? The same life that was there when God raised him from the dead. I have never seen anyone raised from the dead. That would be a dramatic moment to see a person who has expired, who has, be, has cooled off, suddenly come to life how did that how did he come to life he came to life because everything that was keeping him dead was overcome by the power of god and new life came into him and that's the life that's at work in us he says i want you to know the resurrection life then it's the ruling life that's another side of it because once he he rose raised from the dead where where is the lord today where he's this is a big part of the book of ephesians He's seated in the heavenly places. Seated in a place where everything is under his feet. There's a lot of people on this earth doing a lot of hoopla about how great they are and how powerful they are and what they can, you know. But the Lord's in control. He's seated on the throne. And Paul wants him to see this. But then I want you to see, this is the third part of it. He is the resident power. It's not just he's up there. He's here. And that's where he finishes out. And we want to He put all things in subjection under his feet. That's verse 22. And gave him as head over all things to the church. He is the head of the body. We share a common life. And then he says what about him? Which is his body. That's what we are today. We're not all of it, but we're part of that body, right? which is his body. And what's he say about the body? His body is the fullness of him. We are the filling out of Jesus Christ in God's economy. But we're the fullness of him who does what? Who fills all in all. 
that power, that life is what fills all of us. So he is, it's resurrection power. It is, it's the power of, of ruling. He is the authority that's over everything. But here's the great part tonight for all of us. That he is the power that is resonant in me and resonant in you to accomplish the purposes of God. That's tremendous. We need to see that, don't we? And that takes you all the way back around to where we started out. What do we get out of all that? I can talk about it. You can talk about it to somebody else. But what has to happen is God has to open up the eyes of your heart. And when's he going to do that? He's going to do that when we pray. We present the word, but we have to pray. But he will do it when we pray. Why did Paul pray? Remember way back at the very beginning, we said, if you're going to, have a, if you're going to pray without ceasing, you're going to have to believe certain things. First of all, you're going to have to believe that there's a will of God being done on the earth. If you don't believe that, then you're just going to be afloat, right? The second thing is that that will is being done in your life. But the third part is this. That purpose of God, which is being done through you, is also being affected by the fact that you pray. His purpose comes to pass when we ask him. So I come back to, you, to the, the question we had at the beginning. Where are the places where you're, where you're doing some teaching? Might be your children. Might be a Sunday school class. Might be a friend. It might be somebody you're discipling. I don't know what it is, but I think almost everybody in the church has the gift of teaching in one sense. I mean, how many of us don't have to tell somebody, help somebody understand? We help each other understand. If that's going to be accomplished, what do we have to do? We have to come to the Lord and trust him. Ask him. Entrust the whole matter to him. Do the teaching. True enough, Paul did that. But then what do we do? We've got to ask God to do what he alone can do. Give to the person you're trying to teach a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Ask him to do it. Spirit of God wants to do that. That's his job on the earth is to make Jesus known. You will be answered if you pray this. We pray a lot of things for a lot of people, but at the core of it, that's what we're asking. We are asking for people who know God, for the spirit of God to move in and to make it real so that we're not just reciting the Apostles' Creed. The things that we have learned begin to make a difference, and they begin to be the principles on which we take action in life to achieve the great goal of Jesus being glorified. It's a tremendous prayer. He got that all into one chapter. But he prayed for all of them. Paul prayed without ceasing. We need to take a, take a lesson from him. We need, to pray, we need to work. We also need to ask God to do the exceeding abundant thing. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come before you and we give you thanks for your word. But we thank you also tonight for your spirit. Active on this earth. And we pray for ourselves, Father, as we think on these things. We think on these verses that all of us, self-included. Father, you will open our eyes the inward eyes of our understanding so that we will be able to understand the greatness of what you've done and live in a manner which is worthy of the Lord. We come and trust you for it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.